A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, my father. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. The Spacing Guild and its navigators, who the spice has mutated over 4,000 years, use the orange spice gas, which gives them the ability to fold space. That is, travel to any part of the universe without moving. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you, the spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. A desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Fremen, who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. Welcome to Framerate, our movie review podcast via Patreon, but we're making it public for everyone who follows uh, Perfect Organism and Shoal of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm joined here by... Patrick, my friend, Jamie. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm Jamie. Um, <laughs> and we are here to talk about... David Lynch's Dune. I've been a fan for a long, long time. I think it came out in 1984. 84, right? 84, yes. And I've been a fan of this film a long time. Patrick, you've seen it, but you just recently watched it again because it had been a while for you. I I watch it quite often. I have the, the, the... the metal box set. I think there's four discs in there. I, I love the film. I'm fairly, fairly aware and fully aware of many of its issues. But uh, I thought, in light of Denis Villeneuve's Dune that's coming out in, at the end of this year, we should talk about this movie and talk about where Dune is with us and where it has been on our radar and if it's a film that you've thought about or a story or a book. Have you read the books? Stuff like that. So thanks for joining us, everybody. And we are gonna start talking about it let's start yeah this this is one that i've been kind of um unsure of how to broach because this is a movie that i have a hard time sort of um penetrating in a way Ooh. like this this is <laughs> came out came out sexual you know what else is you know what else is sexual i just say for those of you listening is is we just moved uh you know my family and i moved and we finally have functional internet and so i feel like the uh the, our connection right now is so freaking good and I'm getting like genuine pleasure from that. So that that's my Fantastic. that's my other little other little thing. So I feel like Dune is is a property that has always interested me. I have never read any of the novels. I own the first one. I got a hardback edition of it to read, and it is it is the only book that is not packed away in a suitcase still right now because it's something that I'm going to be getting to very shortly. Um, I've always been fascinated by it. 
the film itself, I had never actually seen the entire thing, although I, I had assumed that I had. But as I mentioned to you this morning, you know, in rewatching it, I was like, oh, man, there's stuff in here that I don't I don't think I've ever actually seen before. So I think that this viewing the last two days was the, the first time I've seen the entire thing from the very beginning until the very end. And uh, and it's also the first time I've watched any of it in probably a decade, something like that. Um, and I personally uh, have a very hard time connecting with this movie, but I do not have a hard time connecting with the ideas underpinning it, which makes me think that, that Denis Villeneuve's film is probably going to blow my fucking head off, and I'm going to be mm. very excited about it, and the novel will as well. But you have always had a different connection with this movie. It's come up before as something that you're you know into. I know you're a big Krull fan. It's kind of a similar era, similar aesthetics, yes. yeah. some similar you know creative team. Um and uh, and and we've also discussed Dune quite a bit in the context of the Hodorowsky failed, you know, project, which to me is is it's one of my like big sort of cinephile, you know, amazements. It's something that I've always been so fascinated by. But um, can you give us a little bit of insight into your relationship with the 1984 movie and kind of and what you what you see in it that that I might not? Well, I remember seeing Dune as a young kid um, in the commune that I grew up with, and of course, in this commune, it is was always sort of steeped in religious mythology and Jesus and, you know, like being the chosen one, Moses, all of those things. So those types of stories, whether it's stories like Superman or even Star Wars, or you have Luke Skywalker coming out of the desert to sort of lead his people or be the Matrix. Hero. Matrix for sure, but that's much, much, much later. The story of Dune has always felt personal to me. I, I think there's a couple things happening for me in terms of Dune. There's the story, there's the movie, which I really love it. I, I love it for its aesthetics. I think it's beautiful, the architecture, the art direction, the costuming. I mean, it's second to none. I've never seen a movie in some ways that beautiful before. I think it's absolutely stunning. Um, I love the idea of this sort of savior, this the savior coming out of... I mean, we'll, we'll get into the story, but the savior rising up and... F essentially he's Moses, he's sort of Jesus, he's freeing his people. And But you, within this savior story, you have sorcery, like uh, the Bene Gesserits and their, their witch's tongue, and you have the Spacing Guild, and the, these monst monstrous things that fold space, and they, they run these spaceships, and there's so much going on in this world, and you have this big fat baron, Donald Trump, you know, in uh, a Baron... In a gravi it's it's tr Trump in a gravity suit, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Baron Harkonnen off in his own world. And then you have like... Um, then you have the Fremen, which live on um, Arrakis. And then you have uh, the Emperor, uh, Shaddam IV. And there's so much going on. It's so heady. It's so layered. There's so much happening. Um, now, I think... Do I love this film? Yes. Do I think it's probably a little ridiculous? Absolutely. Is it a masterpiece? Never. Um, is it full of tons of problems? Sure. Absolutely. I think what speaks to me about Dune is there's this power behind it. Um, there's this power to Kyle MacLachlan's performance. I love him in this movie. I think he is, he is it very... Was his, it was his first role. First big role, yeah, for sure. Yeah. He's very over the top. I mean, he's over the top. He is ridiculous. Father! You know, like, the sleeper has a weight. Like, it's over the top. Now, he was also directed by David Lynch, so maybe that's... I was going to say, it's a David Lynch movie, right? That's, you know? Everybody's like that. But 
What's interesting, though, is Lynch is not an over-the-top director. He's a very quiet, understated director. So this was a very interesting film for him. I mean, he won't even talk about it anymore, which is, you know, it's like the it's like his Alien 3. And this is the same director who directed The Elephant Man, which me and a friend are doing a frame rate on. We'll be releasing at some point. Um, so you have the director of Elephant Man and Blue Velvet and so many movies, so many avant-garde art house films directing this huge, over-the-top, corny cheesy sci-fi um so it's kind of like where was david lynch in this what where was his head in this i mean he he left like he sort of dropped his name from the pro the project he sort of walked away from it um but i feel like it it is a worthy film and of course it's who also does it star as johnny sean young who was fresh off blade runner from this role. Blade Runner had released a year, uh, two years before, so she went right into filming for Dune. And I feel like there's a lot to discuss. Um, and there's a lot, again, there's a lot happening in the story where you have this esteemed family coming to take over this um, guild, this, this, this planet where the spice is mined, where everyone uses a spice to fold space, to change their lives all of these things, and this family's going to take over it, and there's this other family, this sinister family, who has other plans, and they devise their own plot, and war breaks out. And uh, you think it's all over for House Atreides, but it's not, and then... Jesus is coming. Yeah, but even still, he has his own journey. Um, Paul Atreides, played, played by Kyle MacLachlan, you know, he has his own journey that he's coming from. He's this this young kid... Um, essentially sort of untested. He's being trained by all the right people. And then he's thrust into this world where he has to either step up or step back. And he chooses to step up. And I think it's a really phenomenal thing. Now, you come here. She's using the voice. No. Some strength. Surprising. Come here. I so I I I, I what is interesting about this movie there's a lot that's interesting about this movie one of them i think is is specifically david lynch because there are moments in the film where you can kind of see him poking through but i agree that in the, on the whole and i say this is a very big lynch fan um see very much of him in this movie i see in some of the weirdnesses i see him i and in some of the way that you know shots are framed i can see his hand there but um it feels almost too sleep for, for for a film that takes as many liberties with the source material it feels very slavish to the idea that it's based on a book and i think that's no it's no accident that this is probably lynch's first you know novel adaptation i would imagine this is the first one that he did um, because a lot of the, the things that happen in novels, like, you know, characters having inner monologues that are just sort of, dr I mean, the amount of times in this movie where somebody kind of just like holds a look and then has an inner, like, well, I can't believe he's going to do this if that's what he really thought he was going to say. And it's echoing in their head, you know, like the, they're very kind of novel tropes that I think really slow the pace down and not in a way that's interesting. Denis Villeneuve is somebody who knows how to slow pace down for dramatic effect, right? Like his films are slow because they kind of have to be, because they, they give you room to inject yourself and to experience it. Dune, 84 Dune, 
is slow, I think, because it's a little bit constipated. Because there are a lot of things that it gets kind of hung up on making sure that everybody understands. But in doing so, overcomplicates what at its heart is actually like such a fucking simple story. And that's the thing. Dune is the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. Everybody always says that, right? If the novel itself were as hard to comprehend as the movie is, I don't think people would be reading it this much. I think the movie in trying to go so deep into the different layers of the order of, you know, the House of Trades and House Harkonnen and into the, you know, the different cultural artifacts that, that the Fremen have and into the, you know, Arrakis ec ecology and into all these different things that it kind of spends a lot of time literally telling us about because it's exposition, it's just characters turning to the screen and talking about a lot of the time. If it, if it kind of just like allowed that stuff to become symbolic and allowed that stuff to just sort of happen, allowed the mentats to not be so distracting, allowed a lot of these things to just sort of like fade into the, into the experience of watching the movie, I think it would be a better film. I think it's trying too hard to be a novel. Um, that said... I think the production design, I agree with you, the production design, the costume design for this film is out of control good. It is just extraordinarily beautiful. Um, I think that the, uh, uh, who, uh, what's uh, Cyan Phillips' character's name? The uh, witch mother? Uh, Guy, uh, Gaius Helen Mohim? Yes. Her her costuming is like, that's one of the yes. most amazing outfits I've seen in a film in my life. Yeah. I mean, it's just, am yeah. I mean, uh, like, and, and the fact that you had this, just extraordinary list of some of the best, especially European character actors of the you know middle twentieth century in this film. It's an astounding cast, and uh, and it has a lot going for it. And also Toto's soundtrack is awesome. I think it's instantly recognizable. Um, it's it's unique, and uh, and it's kind of hypnotic, without being uh, without droning. It's it's a it's a very hypnotic score. Um, I think it has a lot going for it. It's just, I think, in in its execution, in the way it came together, it feels like it was trying to be a book on screen. And you don't want that to happen. If you're making a film based on a book, you take the story from the book and you liberate it, right? You don't make sure that you cover every single period on the page. Um, and in and, and Dune, to me, that's kind of part of what holds it back, personally. Yeah, and I think that it really lacks context. Now, there's a longer cut with, they use imagery to sort of tell the story of the Bene Gesserits and the House of Trades and why they are and who they are and what and they use all these images and um, that cut is somewhere available. I don't know available, but it's somewhere. They played it on TV once. Um, actually, I think the box set that I have has that cut wherever that box set is. Um, but I think yes, the film suffers from. I think the inner monologues just suffocate the film. I think instead of like you know, there's a scene where um, in the beginning Paul is being trained by. Um, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Patrick Stewart's character is like, oh, what's wrong with him? Is he? He seems angry. You know, like everything's right, exactly. like, oh, what, uh, what, what is he like? Especially with he... Paul, who has yeah. to fucking tell us everything. Not only that he's observing, but everything he's dreaming about, mm -hmm. as he's also dreaming about. I'm like, what the yeah. fuck, David Lynch? Yeah. Back off a little bit. Yeah, it right. Was so expositional in almost every frame, and it was. You could. I. I don't know. See, I do love the film, but I don't know tons about it, actually. I don't know if maybe some of that, much like Blade Runner, some of that inner monologue was like the studio was like, no, you got to explain this stuff. This is not clear. You got to explain I bet a lot this. of it was because cause Lynch, like you said, removed his name from the from the film and subsequent cuts of it. He did not have final cut privileges. He mm -hmm. basically exited, you know, before it was 
finally printed. So I'm sure a lot of this was the studio trying to cover their asses and feeling like they had something that audiences weren't capable of understanding, which is crazy because it was the one time in fucking film history when there's a really good chance the audiences would understand something, right? Yeah. This was mid-1980s science fiction. This is when you could throw anything at the screen and you would have an audience there who was like capable of, of getting into it. I mean, mm -hmm. you, they were bombarded by amazing idea based science fiction in the mid 1980s. Yeah. And for whatever reason, the producers of Dune didn't trust people. I don't think. Yeah, they didn't trust people. And I think uh, that was very interesting. Although I think about films like Blade Runner who, you know, the original cut had the, the, um, the voiceover. And of course it's very controversial whether that's effective or whether it takes away from the film. But I think also studios were like, eh, this might be too highbrow. It might be too high concept for audiences. So they dumbed it down so that people could understand it. Um, at least that's what the interpretation was. And I think, you know, Dune has been called almost, well, Dune has been called unfilmable. It's an unfilmable book. And so, and, but then you have, there's a different version of Dune that the Sci-Fi Channel released in the early 2000s. Um, and yeah, 2003. I think it's a six-hour miniseries. Yeah. And then they did Children of Dune, which was another six-hour miniseries. And far more faithful, but unfortunately the acting was really subpar. The casting wasn't great. And the costumes looked ridiculous. I mean, you could tell it was a Sci-Fi Channel and they don't have big budgets and you, you have to have a big budget with Dune, and it was just very obvious. And uh, people will say, yes, it was more faithful to the book, but it was kind of boring, and it really was. Whereas with Lynch's film, it was the opposite, where it was less faithful, but it had a bigger budget, so it was more visually interesting. Uh, I think the story of Dune is a story that has been told before uh, in different versions, whether it's coming out of religious ideology or mythology like Moses, like Jesus. And then you have, then you have different iterations of those Jesus and Moses stories like Superman, um, like the matrix, like Dune, which was written and released in 1965. Star Wars was released in 60 and 77. Um, all of them finding or trading in similar stock where you have this, this young boy, this young man rising up to lead his people. And, and it's I always, think, it's always a man. It's always a fucking, it is man. always a man. It is. Um, well, you know, I think, I, I think if you look at religious mythology, it is always a man there. Too. It is always a man. You but, know. but in, in, in Dune, there's this, it's funny when I was watching it, you know, um, yesterday I was, I, I was noticing things in the script that I didn't notice when I was watching it when I was basically a kid, which were like, so, so Paul is the only son, right? And he was basically born because the King's, uh, mistress or whatever his concubine. concubine um like dis disobeyed him and gave birth to a son although disobeyed her order her Benny jesuit order they said to only bear daughters and she right. decided she was going to bear him a son right and, and what happens with this one son that ends up being born is he's literally the, the messiah like you know thank god he got a pair of balls and a dick is like now we can save <laughs> now we can save the known universe by becoming yeah. the super being right and it's funny because this the story like you're saying is actually on its face if you strip away all of the world building around it is just really really straightforward it's basically like a trade war it's basically the promised land right you have two factions of people whether it be the israelites and the you know egyptians or whatever or, or whether it be you know harkonnen and and uh, atreides you have two houses fighting over the same land right the same the same resources or however you want to define that who um 
you know, are basically the only way that the conflict is uh, is eliminated is when a savior can rise up and, and, you know, basically supersede conflict and show people peace through battle, right? Um, and, I, and I feel like it's just weird that the, the movie makes it seem so much harder to understand than that. But I do think that um, there are moments in it that are, like, just really, really extraordinary. Like the guild, you know, like like their shots when they're coming out of that enormous, you know, spaceship that can fold mm-hmm. space with the with, with the, the vagina giant, mouth, the vagina, yeah, <laughs> with the the flesh to which flesh I thought light. was ridiculous to be honest with you. I thought, come on, like, come on. And those are mutated people, right? Yes. Yeah. It also looks a lot up. like the creature from Eraserhead, if you've seen Eraserhead. It does a lot. Yeah, like very little, similar yeah. architecture going on there. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Uh, like like those shots are amazing. I think that like the the interiors of the House of Atreides with the you know the giant sets are just incredible. And I think that the sand dunes you know themselves are really beautifully shot. I think that the worms are just incredible. The sense of scale, like that first time when they're flying you know over with Max von Sydow, who again like just one of many actors in this thing who's just incredible. And they and they see the worm for the first time rising up to to grab the vessel out of the sand. Um, it really feels like a like a you know 400 meter creature. It doesn't feel like a miniature. Um, the effects in this movie are really astounding. And again, it goes to show you that in the mid 1980s, it almost didn't matter what story you had. If you had a film that had an effects budget, you could create spectacle that people would go and, and see. You know, um, and I feel like the the amount of spectacle in this film is just astounding. Try looking into that place where you dare not look. You'll find me there staring back at you. You mustn't speak! I think that the effects, I think they can be great, but also they can be really shitty. Like there's a scene where Paul and his mother are on the rocks and they're run, they've taken away, they've flown out of um, where they were supposed to be with the palace and they're falling on the rocks and you see them and you can tell and it's blue screen yeah, the, the screen i know um, again the, the, i feel like blue screen or green screen that is the one thing in mid-1980s films where they like in aliens this is an issue quite a bit too where like they did not composite it well enough right like in the dropship and aliens it's like oh man like it looks so great until this one shot yeah it looks pretty good although it's funny because the com- composite the compositing in Alien Three was worse than Aliens for what? Well, in reason. a couple of sequences, yeah, definitely, oh, and, and quite a few sequences. However, um, I do think, but then there's a scene where they they get on the worms in in Dune, and it's clearly a blue screen behind them, and you can just see the lines. But on the whole, I think the effects were pretty great. Um, the scale, the 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 design of the ships, the stilt suits. Um, the Benny Gesserits, the the palace, the dresses, and you could see that they pulled from some elements of human history because it is our history much further in the future. But at the same time, it felt wholly alien and very foreign. It did not seem, um, it did not seem identifiable to us to think, oh, look, it's like Queen Elizabeth, but it wasn't. Yes, they had larger dresses, but it wasn't. And I just, I love the, the look of the Bene Gesserits. I love that they're the, it's like this, this sisterhood, almost like nuns, but they're powerful. They're some of the most powerful beings in the universe because of what they can do and their powers of procreation and the voice that they use. And people are a little afraid of the Bene Gesserits, which I think is interesting um, because I think they're sort of balance out this, yes, this idea that the Kwisatz Haderach was a man, 
but it might not necessarily could have been a man. It could have been a woman. Um, But who had the power to bring that person to life? A woman. And they knew it. They knew that they were the order that this that this supreme being was going to come from. So I feel like, um, yes, it's a story about. I don't feel like it's a story about a man saving uh, a a group of people or uh, a nation. I feel like it's a story of a people rising up together with this foreigner, and him showing them how to topple the. I mean, not that they, I mean, then you have the whole, like, Fern Gully, like, do they, right. you, you know. <laughs> Elysium, right. <laughs> yeah, and that, you know, that can be problem, problematic, too, but I think there was, a, I think for a long time, and there's still elements of it in terms of, like, white savior coming to save. I mean, however, in Dune, most of the Fremen are white. I mean, it's not like white men well, come in. They're white, they're white, but they're clearly, like, minority. Like, they're they're clearly oh, yeah. like other, right? They're, like, they're like, like the Irish or something, yeah. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, they're not. They're not like. I mean, and they're looked down upon. People like they took you know, a prince fun to them. save them. Yes, yes. Right, and and in in addition to there being like you know the only son who becomes the savior of these people, he also rides a giant dick into battle. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Too. So, you know, to, be, to be fair, there's something going on there. Uh, there's also a weird, you know. So when when Harkonnen kills that boy in the in the the first time you see him, yeah. Like, hey, what the fuck is going on with that yeah, it's sequence? Weird. It's like they didn't want to show what they were doing but he pulls out his heart plug and so he's bleeding and in the book it describes baron harkonnen's uh predilection for young boys he's uh-huh. um, he's he a monster um but they don't really but then you know you see sting coming out in his metal his metal bikini and you can and he's stings is harkonnen's nephew but you nephew, see right? the baron looking at him very much like what I could do with him, what I could do to him. So there's this sort of incestuous lust happening between the Baron Harkonnen and what Sting's character? Oh, um, um, Fade Rautha, that's his name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's interesting. It's, it's gross. It's it's dirty. It's it is gross, and, and I don't think I like it's it though. I mean, I, I don't like think it. it's intentionally. I don't think it's intentionally kind of like besmirching like homosexuals. No, no, not at all. But but it, I think, and for audiences in the mid nineteen eighties, I I could see it perhaps playing like that. And and I I saw one review where somebody pointed that sequence out, and I was thinking for people who uh, might not have been used to seeing like you know uh, same sex sexual interactions on film before, um, the fact that like one of the first ones that they're seeing is this monstrous thing where this yes. old man is just destroying this young boy. It's just where they like, make it look disgusting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Where they, where, yeah. I mean, it's literally a fat, warty guy destroying a beautiful young boy. Basically, yeah. it's like it's just like yeah. it plays on all of these different. So I'm sure that wasn't the intention. I just I can see that having been problematic at the time. Yeah. Um, but I do think that uh, that the the I can't remember his name, but the actor who plays Harkonnen does a really good job of selling the uh, incredible you know grotesqueness of the role. Also, Brad Dourif is in this, which is so yes. cool. Like this is one of the first films that I I remember ever ever having seen him in, um, and I think he's terrific as that you know Ment is it Mentat Mentat how do they say Mentat Mentat what's his name uh, his name is oh, Piter. Piter, yeah, it, yeah, like really interesting job. And then also in terms of world building, you know, the reason why they even have those mentats in the first place, right, is because computers are outlawed. And so mm-hmm. there's a reason why I think it seems a little bit like uh, alien future. Like, so, for, you know, for example, I talk about Fury Road all the time, which how the fuck have we not done that frame rate yet? Oh because my God. that's a movie yeah. I could talk about that all night long, any day of the week. 
um, I like to bring that up in the context of, in, you know, in a terrestrial, like an earthbound environment that isn't, you know, completely different from the one that we're inhabiting now, but feels like a, a completely different, you know, it's like inhabited by different species, even though it's just us in different circumstances. Um, I feel like, uh, the uh, the the idea that computers are outlawed sets up a context for Dune that allows for similar things to happen because they're not uh, you know as overtly technological as you would expect them to be like they are right like they have amazing machinery but they're not a bunch of like you know sort of cerebral superhumans kind of levitating around you know doing whatever they want they're in a lot of ways kind of like biblical right they're they're like these old Shakespearean houses of you know lords and ladies who um, are you know using you know, basically just doing extractive industry mining on a on a desert planet right well, I think you, you're hitting on a very important thing and what sets Dune apart so much from other science fiction. It's not the lack of technology. It's the lack of most science fiction films. It's screens. It's this. It's, it's oh, look at this screen here. It's projection. Right, exactly. It's, exactly. It's, um, uh, what do you call those 3D models um, that are holograms? Holograms. Yeah. Holograms. There's everything. There's tablets. There's this and there's that. Where it does feel almost like fantasy. Yes, they're technologically advanced, but it's more organic where we've learned to, we've learned to pilot in space by taking substances that alter our understanding of what space is and what space can do. And that then changes us. And then it gives whoever the guild are part of the spacing guild powers that are almost that are unnatural but they've they've harnessed them and that they can but it's come at a cost it's come at the cost of the their bodies and um their minds and yeah i find just, that aspect super freaky i, the, I the, do too the the body, navigators like that's oh, yeah. fucking scary the fact that they just live in tanks of of misty you know uh spice like i find that super freaky and 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 especially in, in some of the dune novels i know that there's other things with people becoming worms and things like that like that shit that shit scares me a lot yeah yeah with most science fiction you see a lot of attention paid to the technology that's sort of a part of, of the genre even in blade runner it's prevalent in the genre. They don't focus on it too much. You see people just using stuff as if it's every day. Oftentimes, even in bad sci-fi, there's all this attention paid to technology where science fiction isn't about technology. It's about the questions. It's about the larger philosophy. That's really what good science fiction is about. And I think what, what makes um, David Lynch's Dune so amazing is there's no focus at all there's not just not focus on the technology. There's not even a shot looking at like this screen or that screen. It's just as happening. And it's really unique. Again, I don't think the film is successful. I think it's got a cult following. A lot of people love it because it's cheesy, but it's something that was like a world. They, they promoted the film as a world beyond your imagination. And it really is. Uh, there are definitely, there are whole stretches in that movie that would fit that category. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where you're just sort of like, you know, draws on the floor and then and then something so stupid happens you know or yeah, something yeah. so such a poor decision is made or then you get an actor who's just like like uh the the other um fade routha's brother who uh, i can't remember his name but um, yeah the other nephew he, he was the big yeah. one right um, he that actor was just ridiculous he was a terrible actor just you know like just over the top um it, 
And there but again, se- though, I do wonder if that was part. I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting That's you off because our, our connection, our connection is good enough that I can do that now. I, I know. I know. So people are gonna that. fucking write in and complain about this. But see, we even so with the nephew, his Fade's brother. Like to me, that is is more of like a Lynchian character, which mm-hmm. is I think is why it kind of sticks out. In Twin Peaks, for example, there's a lot of characters who act like they walked in from another movie and are happen to be in this one. And are just sort of reading the lines and they kind of go off back into another movie. You know what I mean? It's very Lynchian, I think, to just yes. sort of have this like, it's like a character who exists purely within its own relativistic universe. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? And I think like that there's something to be said for like bad acting, quote unquote, working well in Lynch films. And this one, the bad acting is just bad acting. And, and I think yeah. it's because he didn't have control over some of the aesthetic considerations around, I mean... Like there, there are moments in Lynch's filmography that I think are some of the most amazing things ever put to film. I really think some of his, his what he's done, especially in terms of like imagery that can get under your skin, is just like it's it's like he has some sort of a you know finger on the pulse of God or something. It's fucking amazing. In Dune, though, his finger wasn't on the pulse enough to reveal it. It was just sort of on the pulse enough to make you like aware that he was involved. I think. Yeah, and I think uh, just to wrap up the acting portion of this discussion, the acting is all over the place. Uh, I think even there's moments where Sting is sort of like over the top, I will kill him! He's jumping up and down, like, and it's, you see these character moments, but you haven't been introduced to any other character moments before, so it's, at least with Paul, Paul sort of the same over the top savior uh, from the beginning, even when he's in his own thoughts, he's very over the top, so at least he, he was, you know, he stayed true to who he was. Um, and then the most notable character, some notable female characters like Chani, played by Sean Young, she was sort of relegated to this kind of damsel in distress. She seemed powerful in the beginning, but she she's just sort of his, then became his love interest. And she wasn't, like, she was a non-character. Um, and I don't know how much of her character is on the cutting room floor because I hear that there's hours of, of well, it was footage. four hours, right? The first cut of it was four hours long. Something like that, but I think that's myth. Myth. I don't know how true that is. People say that, oh, there's a four-hour cut somewhere. I don't know if that's true. It could okay. be. It could be for sure. But then you have even Jessica, who I thought was a great character in the beginning, and she has prominence. She's then becomes a reverend mother, and she sort of disappears from the movie. She's just quiet, and and it's it, it's it's unfortunate that so many of the the female characters are sort of nothing by the end of the film. And it's this really, this film about men. Um, and then you have other interesting char- characters like the shed at Mapes played by that one actress. Um, oh my God. I can't remember her, her name. Oh, I see her name right now. Lin- Linda Hunt. Linda Hunt. Yes. Fucking awesome actress. She's uh, amazing. In, she's a, she won Academy Award too. Yep. Yep. Yeah. She's amazing. Um, and I thought she, you know, the shed at Mapes could have been a great character, but, and you see her, Introduced, I am the shut at Mapes housekeeper, and then oh, then she's killed, you know. And after how how long? Maybe one minute. I, mean, I, know, she, I remember her being like, in that movie, like for like for some reason. She, I think because she's just a great actress. So whenever I see her in something, I'm like, oh, this is like Lynn Hunt. Yeah. She's yeah. in that movie for like three minutes. It's un, it's so short. Yeah. Um. What about Duncan Idaho? Do you like him? Duncan is played by oh yeah that one actor. I did, but again he's Duncan gets killed right away. I know. So in the books, supposedly he's like a huge deal, right? Like he's like a, he's like a fan favorite character who comes back and you know, all these things. And in the movie, I thought that actor was really good. He reminds me a lot of Marlon Brando visually. He looks a lot like Marlon Brando. Yeah, sort of. Um, Marlon Brando was better looking, but I can see the comparison. Yeah, but there's like a resemblance, I think. And and then again, he's like so underutilized in this movie because they're just sort of churning through shit, you know? 
and and they even the go ahead well even sean young's character like who is you know foretold in visions for fucking an hour and a half shows up like what like three quarters of the way into the movie you From know and my then dream so beautiful Right, and then she just like, and then th- and then it turns out that's actually all she was there for was basically. That's the strange thing, right? Yeah, it's like from my dream, she's so beautiful. Like that's it. That's all she is. She's not intelligent. She's not. Yeah, right. I mean, the movie does a fairly big disservice to f- the female characters, but I also think the movie doesn't really know what it is. I think that movie is incoherent in some ways. Even the longer cut that they did premiere, I think it was a two and a half hour or three hour cut on TV, which showed explained a lot of the history of Dune. Um, it worked a little bit better, but all those images were just static and they were doing the Ken Burns thing from them from sort of image to image. Um, but I, I think that the movie is just incoherent. Um, and I, what I do love, like some of my favorite parts of the film or towards the end when Paul has assumed the role of the Kwisatz Haderach and he, he has embraced the power and he screams at the end without the weirding module and, he, and the, the earth breaks apart. And people are like shocked that this man is this powerful. Um, like, and they said Paul had become the, the right hand of God. I just, I love that moment. And then it starts raining. There's a biblical quality to the film that I really, really love. And it keeps me coming back. The idea that we maybe even in our own way and in real life, there's some type of mythology at work with us. I don't know what that mythology might be. For some of us, it might be involve the religious for some others and maybe it's more of a poetic mythology that's happening to the world but i love tapping into the mythology and i think when it works it really works i i don't think that that's very often but i i definitely think it's worth seeing even if you're just going to see it for the the costume design and the set design i mean all the wood, oh yeah just it's beautiful it's it's similar to prometheus in that respect i think oh yeah it's, it's a movie that um it's better than prometheus but yeah for some for some people i agree for some people um it will really speak to you right like just like there are some some of our friends who for whom prometheus is just like the greatest thing yep, they've ever like seen two of them. Mm-hmm. for like two, for like two of our friends both suffered <laughs> tremendous brain damage um for a lot of you know i i know people who think dune is just like the, the greatest movie ever and they're just completely obsessed with it um, I think it speaks to like certain types of film goers with certain types of expectations. And I think for everybody else, it's really a curiosity. Prometheus similarly is a curiosity. It's mm-hmm. extremely beautiful. It's, it's so well made, but it, the script was like written on the back of toilet paper by a fifth grader. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly w- with Dune, it is like just an extraordinarily beautiful achievement. It has some of the best technical things, you know, that the 1980s could have possibly brought. It's made by one of the great directors of the 20th century. Yeah. It has some of the most eminent actors, you know, of the second half of the 20th century in it. Um, it has a lot going for it. And yet it ends up not to me. Okay. So here, here's my issue with it. To me, it's not weird enough to do justice to the book, or at least from what I know of the book. Hodorowsky's version was so incredibly strange, for one thing, because it was Hodorowsky who just loves to do avant-garde crazy shit, but also because he felt like the only way that book could be made into a film was to make a film that basically could explode people's notions of what a film could do, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite composers of the early 20th century is this guy named Scriabin. Who, do, you know, do you know Scriabin? He was a Russian composer, uh, died in the 1920s, very young. Um, um, he, he's worth checking out. You, you would probably appreciate his music. I'll show you next time we visit. Um, 
So, so Scriabin had this this notion increasingly as his you know career went on that the only way to write a symphony that could express what music actually could be was to create a symphony that would basically obliterate what anybody thought a symphony could be. So he had this idea of basically making a pilgrimage to the top of this one specific mountain and having people come from all over the world wearing only certain types of colors of outfits and coming to the top of this thing where there would be an enormous light organ, literally he called it a light organ, that would basically cover the mountain peak with color that would explode when certain notes would be played and that you would have an orchestra with thousands of people playing as loudly as they could on top of a mountain. And the idea would basically be to create a state of such ex ex ecstasy that there would be no going back, that that would be the only way to do justice to what music actually could do. So Similarly, like describing the scene in Close Encounters when the people are on the hillside, ah, 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 and they're and with they're like singing, the with the signals, and they put their hands up. Where did it come from? But they're all singing on the mountainside, and the, some of them are wearing orange, some of them are wearing white. That's yeah, it's a it's a little bit like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it is, it is a little bit like that visually, definitely. Um, but the idea with, with Dune, as Hodorowsky saw it, was that the only way you could do justice to this book that was so much was basically to obliterate what people expected a movie to be. And that's why he had, you know, Salvador Dali involved. That's why he had these crazy, crazy creative decisions going on and why he assembled such an extraordinarily ambitious thing that was beyond unfilm. I mean, it was, it was like the most profoundly unfilmable thing anybody had ever taken seriously to a studio before, right? Um, and with all of his pedigree and all of his endorsements and all of his power, he could not get that thing made. And uh, and I think with, with Lynch, studio executives probably thought, well, this is one of the only people who is artistically similar to Hodorowsky and that he can kind of tap into this surrealistic, subconscious craziness that might get us something like what Hodorowsky was trying to do, but on a budget, which ended up being was $42 million or something, right? Which is a lot of money back then. Um, and then I think they didn't let him actually do what he wanted to do with it. I think if Lynch had made the movie that he wanted to make, we would be talking about it as one of the great films of its decade. I really think so. Instead, what we got was a still relatively young, early in his career director who, although he had all the power in the world and all the promise in the world and all of the endorsements, again, like Hodorowsky had 10 years before him, could not convince the studio to take enough of a chance to do it right. And what I really hope we see with Denis Villeneuve, and what I really think we will, because I think he is at a point where he has not only proved, obviously, that he's artistically extraordinary, but that he can turn a fucking profit on a movie, right? Even if it's not always like an enormous blockbuster profit, he can actually deliver on time and get, make money for studios. I hope we see that he is allowed to take the risks that he feels he needs to take to do justice to this extraordinarily ambitious work of art that is Dune. And, you know, we are coming up on its 50th 60th anniversary right like i mean the book yes yeah i mean that's a huge deal yeah you know i think uh for me at least in closing my thoughts i think in terms of the lynch film um what i feel like is the problem with this film is that they focused m more attention on the look of it and less attention on the script and you can tell it's beautiful but it's incoherent uh and that's where and oftentimes in hollywood even on simpler films um especially in today's market, you have films that look really good, but are sort of like, eh, yeah, okay, that wasn't really about anything, but it sure looked pretty. I mean, that's most of the films. Like these Altered days. Carbon, right? Like yeah. a great example. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. No, thank you. Um, I actually watched all of that, though. I'm just hoping that it would be good. The second and season? It, no, I, I have no, no, no inclination to watch the second season. I yeah, think it's boring as fuck. Um, 
It's, I think it's lowbrow sci-fi, actually. Um, but it looks like highbrow sci-fi, and that no, is the it trap. Doesn't really, it, it th- you think it does, but then, it does for an episode. It it, it, it does for long enough to, to for you to be like, okay, this thing is like the real deal, but it but it's not. But they but the problem with that is they think science fiction like, oh, let's make this look cool, so they'll step out onto a balcony and you'll see like that's not science fiction. Uh, a cityscape that looks like the future that's not that doesn't make your movie science like i just to me it just seemed like wildly sort of 80s sort of wanted to be blade runner sort of took inspiration from blade runner but blade runner isn't a, an aesthetic blade runner is a philosophy um which includes an aesthetic and so you can't you can't mix the two you either it either is set or it is anyways that's the that's fodder for another discussion but um i really think that dune lynch's dune was mired by um lack of attention to the script um but at the same time probably also the idea that you can't fit this in a two-hour movie you just can't do it and villeneuve you know we will discuss this film eventually when it comes out this year at some point we're all excited about it um i think he realized that right away he said we're going to do this in two films i bet you this first film's three hours long or close to it um so and i can't fucking wait to see it because oh, seriously yeah. uh, he he uh, this this will be a move we'll probably have another fucking podcast by the time this year is over with it's gonna be so good and and it, and and i'll you know i'm about to read the book i'm getting into it i'm in the right headspace and uh and i look forward to exploring that with you and with all of you listening as we get closer to october right it's supposed to come out december 20th it's been pushed back right no it hasn't it's, it's was, it was always december it was pushed back once but that was last year it was pushed back and okay. it was supposed to open in november then they moved it to september uh, i was thinking of that okay okay yeah. oh good yeah. okay so we're, so on, we're on track we'll see what happens I mean, with covid but yeah hopefully there'll be enough theaters open i would imagine there will be by that time um i'm still hoping that they have open enough theaters by july so that the new nolan thumb can come out tenant but well and, and the, did you see the latest trailer for it I did. It looks it, great. When it, when it says coming to theaters, it like yeah. they make such a point of like coming to theaters yeah. to make it really clear that that's happening. You know what's funny is we were just unpacking today, you know, in, in our house, um, and uh, and I I saw the ticket stub from Invisible Man that we'd seen in Quebec, and that's the last time I was in a movie theater Me too, for that yeah. same movie. Yeah. And holy shit, that was so long ago. It feels like it feels like a two years ago to me. Like I never go more than a couple of weeks without seeing a movie in yeah, theaters. Yeah. It's, it's been I miss months. So bad. I miss them. I so know. Bad. So here's to uh, hopefully getting back in theaters soon, yeah. and hope everybody's staying safe. Yeah, we're excited. Thank you guys for listening. Um, this was probably going to be part one of a series, not a series on Dune, but we're going to explore Dune again when the film comes out. We know we've been posting on it through Shoulder of Orion because. We're big fans of Denis Villeneuve, and for for now, he's done no wrong. Um, he's he's done mostly right. So I think, hopefully, he knocks this film out of the park. It's going to be interesting, especially with the track record for the people involved in this film, to see if he can get it right. So we'll see. It's funny. The well, last thing I'll say is that now knowing who plays the characters in the new one, you know, it's the first time, obviously, I've seen the old one since knowing who's playing the characters. <laughs> and I'm like, this is going to be an interesting yeah. film. We'll see if he can get uh, Jason Momoa to actually act. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think Jason Momoa is fantastic, but he t- tends to play the same role over and over and over because that's sort of yeah. built for it. He lo- in a long hair beard, like every character, he's this alpha male. Every single movie he's in yeah. or show, he's this crazy alpha male. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I hope he's a little bit more subdued. I hope he can actually act. And uh, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see it. Me too. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you guys. Talk to you soon. And how can this be?
To listen to all of our reviews, go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support and sign up to become a member. Our membership monthly subscriptions start at just $2 a month. For those of you who already support us via Patreon, we thank you. <laughs>